0: netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX podcast from fxguide.com.
1: Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. This is the podcast where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. Check out all of our podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Our focus today is Transformers Age of Extinction with ILM's Scott Farrar and Pat Tubach. This is a film that Scott describes as very dense and says it represents the largest data wrangling film in ILM's history. So if you're thinking, oh, this is just another Transformers movie, you'll want to listen to some of the challenges they faced. So let's jump right into our podcast this week. First, Mike speaks with ILM Scott Farrar, and then later with Pat Tubach.
2: Bring it up! All the way! You guys have never seen a truck like this before.
3: I think we just found a Transformer.
0: Hey Scott, how are you?
2: Hello. Hi, Mike. Good. Tired.
0: Good. Uh, I so appreciate you talking to me, especially given I understand you only just finished the film.
2: We are just sending an email out. My producer, Wayne Billheimer, just came over just moments ago and said, okay, I think I'm going to email the crew that we're done. So it's just happened.
0: How does that feel? (laughs) Huh? How does that feel?
2: Oh, my gosh. It was a monumental movie um, in every way. It was, uh, we, we traveled everywhere. You know, we didn't shoot anything in California. We were on many locations. So I was on the road about seven months last year for the locations. And then and that was a big deal. It was a huge crew traveling many places here in the United States, Detroit, Chicago, Monument Valley, Moab, Seattle, Austin, Texas, Hong Kong, Beijing, Wulong, which is a national park in China. And I started the picture shooting second unit, with a mini helicopter unit in Iceland, wow! And then, then we had the push back here. We had, I think, largest crew I've ever had, 500 people, uh, and heaviest data wrangling picture I've ever done. The largest in, I think, ILM's history, just because of uh, <clears throat> it was IMAX and 3D. So you're rendering twice as much, at least, or more if it's IMAX. It's eight times the amount of data per frame uh compared to thirty five. And uh it was and every shot was dense. I guess I should just simply say, it wasn't just like a single robot in every shot. It was many robots with speaking parts. I mean our work is about an hour about ninety minutes worth of the movie. And my dailies ran almost eight hours a day. The most I've ever done. Oh wow. my god. Dailies and nightlies combined. It was like whoa, you have no idea. Never, never had a movie like this. <laughs> Um, well, there are just so many shots. I mean, yeah. 70 shots to run through and tell everybody, give them you know, feedback. I mean, it's just boggling. Um, uh, but but the, we had a live feed every morning and every afternoon whenever we were doing something um, in our little screening room. Vancouver was hooked in at the same time. So they hear everything live. Because their, their shots were all intermingled with our ILM San Francisco shots, too.
0: Wow. And it's not as if you haven't done a Transformers film before. I mean, you know these films uh, really, really well.
2: Yeah, I do. And this was a, this was even bigger. This was, uh, uh, you know, it was a, a new style. Really, it's not a reboot. It's the beginning of the next chapter of the franchise and the start of a new trilogy. So, and and this one was really uh, not about war. It was about extinction. So it's it's big topics different, you know, different dangers facing all our characters. So, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. It's huge on every detail.
0: You had in this uh, a heck of a lot of, uh, bots. I mean, you had, uh, Autobots, Dinobots, you had ones from space. I mean, you've just got, uh, a ton of stuff, but to make life more difficult, if we just start with the Autobots for a second, they all had a facelift, right? Well, that's
2: true. Um, Good point. Every one of these movies, really, we 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 go back to the drawing board to some extent to add a little bit of uh, a p- patina of coolness. I would say to, to up their factor of uh, better look, uh, nicer design, sleeker design. I would say both for Optimus and Bumblebee, we went for a more muscular, stronger design. Uh, and but beyond that, even for Optimus, we had. We have three different body styles because he goes through different body transformations. And we have, I think, uh, in one one phase of his body style, we have four levels of damage. And, you know, it, it sounds like small stuff, but as you may know, you've got to create every one of these. Just like, you know, if if you want a robot with an arm on, okay, you make the... Robot with the arm on. If you want it with it severed off at certain place with, with dangling bits and wires sticking out, you have to create that. You have to cut it and make all the parts. And so it's it's not like just boom, you're done. You, every one of these has to be, uh, designed, crafted, modeled, painted, and and then the truth always is it never quite works. Once you put it in into a render and see it in camera, uh, there might be an angle where something doesn't hold up or or you miss something. So there's a lot of uh, redo and retouch.
0: Talk to me about um, Lockdown, because uh, from my you know outsider point of view, he seems to have the most articulated face. Is that true?
2: He does. Uh, there's another character that also has... Well, Slingshot, the green character based yep. on the uh, Corvette, and uh, Ronan based on the Bugatti, they also have... Uh, uh, Facial features that are somewhat humanoid, but I think you're right. Lockdown has the most, and so that's a little bit different. You know, to try and make those guys look good and look cool and look look, they're sort of robotic, uh, and and yet not exactly. But they're certainly made of metal. You know that. And
0: is it Slingshot that has the uh, cape in the film?
2: That has the cape? No, that's yes, that's Slingshot. That's great.
0: So that's another added uh, thing that we haven't seen before. That. I mean, oh yeah that's a lot of fun. How you, how'd you approach that? because that's a that's a difficult balance to to sort of I was gonna say weave but to use a bad pun, but that's a difficult you know balance to find.
2: Yeah, it's well once again, it's got to be uh, go back to a, a simulation step. Once you have all the animation, if he's sitting in a cockpit, we have to decide, okay, if he's gonna have it on, where is it going to be seen? How are you going to see it? Do you need to see it? Sometimes we turn parts of it off, sometimes we leave it on. Because any of these things that have to look flexible, and this one was looking like a a, a long overcoat type, uh, yeah, long coat. That then it's got to blow and move correctly. So, and that doesn't just arrive that way. That usually takes a couple of tries. But uh, that's just part of all the sims that are required. Just like Hound, he's another new character who has he's got a great big belly and. He's got dozens of weapons, and it seems like thousands of bullets. Wherever he goes, he's dropping bullets and dropping weapons. And when he's in a fight, he he uses everything he's got. And so everything moves. Everything swings. Everything is dog tags swing around. And he's got lots of straps and things that all have to be simmed. And he's he's fun when you get all done with him, but he requires a bit of work.
0: Talk to me about the KSI uh, characters in particular. Is it Stinger that has the uh, particle-based uh, stuff that uh, we see? Um, and of course, there's uh, Galvatron. But the the I was just saying this sort of particle-based um, metamorphosis of the metal. If you could just talk about that.
2: Yeah, that's a new style of transformation. That was uh, well. The bottom line is, it's always challenging. First of all, it's very it was very difficult to figure out what the look should be. Um, I always go back to Trans One, where we did the uh, the cube. Where my idea for that was just follow the click clack blocks, where you you know every kid has those, where you yeah you drop a block on the top and go click 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 all the way down, and and then you roll that into the kind of the visual puzzle of oh wait mass can shrink and everything can fold in upon itself. So you know we just like to make these kind of whimsical looking things that are intriguing and entertaining, and. So technically, it was really difficult. But even more difficult was trying to make it look so it was fun to watch. And so once in a while, we'd do a full-on transformation where it breaks all down to cubes and little fluttery bits with the wireframes and so forth. Uh, and sometimes we'd just do the ripples, ripples of uh, through the um, through the the body parts, as if there's a a substrata of metal framework, and you'd reveal that a little bit, and that and. You know, I have to say, at the end of the, well, it's it's fun and it's new and it's different.
0: Well, if you didn't have enough fun, new and different, we haven't even discussed the Dinobots yet, and uh, Grimlock and the rest of them. Um, again, I, uh, you, I guess you, as a company, have the perfect pedigree for doing dinosaurs, though in this particular case <laughs> uh, with a twist. Do you want to discuss those? Right.
2: Yeah, you know the the twist. The the first thought that I had, honestly, was uh, when we when we started doing rough sketches, and then turn it into uh, animatics was, wow, here's the chance to have Optimus Prime riding to the rescue, literally, very heroic, on his steed, just like a John Ford Western shot in Monument Valley as John Wayne is riding on, on his Bronco at full gallop, and you know, you have those great three-quarter shots where the, the horse's nose is right up front and the camera and the and the writers behind john john wayne's behind so i said let's just stage it the same as john ford would do and have that same sort of heroic posture where you've got the head of grimlock right close to camera and you've got you know um you've got optimus mounted up above and he's you know charging ahead like uh like a knight with a sword ready to save the day and that's that's literally what we did
0: how many Dinobots did you end up with? It's quite a few, right? In terms of different styles, oh, different um, different types of...
2: Uh, I think you're the first one to ask me that today. And you, uh, how many new ones? How many total? Well, just how
0: many Dinobot types, yeah, because uh, we haven't seen them before.
2: Well, Dinobot types, we had three. Four, sorry, four. But all new characters, about eight new ones. Right. Eight, eight new ones with... Uh, and then their companion, well, like the Dinobots, they have... Uh, they have humanoid-style characters instead of um, vehicles.
0: Yeah. So um, so as you look at it now, at the, uh, the close of the kind of uh, work that you guys have been doing for so long, w- what are the shots that you just feel really, uh, you know, you're warm to? What are the shots that you really were pleased with the way they come out? I'm not necessarily meaning the bigger shots, but I'm just, you know, from your personal point of view, what do you really like, feel come together well?
1: Well, I think
2: I think the uh, the night ship over the convention center sucking everything up to <laughs> tearing the tearing the building up. Uh, that was uh, a little bit different. I would say number one, Michael Bay for the first time shot in a lot of different weather conditions than what we've done before. We usually have very direct sunlight. Uh, it's it's lots of color, no haze, no smog. Uh, and, and and so you have a nice big sunball to reflect on the robots and and uh, the path to lighting them initially is fairly direct this one like whether it's the, the wheat field sequence or lockdown appears or the ship which i think is a fabulous shot that's what that's an iconic shot mm. where that's that's where the ship is following down the road
0: it's a great uh, once of again yeah
2: yeah but and started with artwork that's how you know you you come up with these images to go, wow, we we gotta recreate that. And based on that, I got the idea, I told my guy, I said, Wow, that's so good. Why don't we just assume that this night ship is so big, so colossally huge, it always has its own little weather pattern cooking around it. He goes, Yeah, 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 okay, good. And that's kind of what we did. And but but uh, but the wheat fields, that sequence we shot we had a little bit of direct sun late in the afternoon. Mostly it was rainy and overcast and very difficult to light the robots in, uh, unless we added movie lights. And so it's not not where Michael Bay likes to, that's not his comfort zone to be in heavy overcast. And the same was true in Hong Kong. You have all those kind of late afternoon, kind of smoggy shots, where the night ship is sort of Mm. just a fuzzy, dim thing there. But but on the other hand, it gave us a, a new opportunity to, uh, okay, what does it do? It does cover up some details in a haze and that sort of thing, but, but it gives it a different color. And then if we do our jobs correctly, it should fit into the what the background looks like. So I think some of those look strangely real and almost surreal because of, of the lighting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about digital cinematography is that it's not just camera blocking and camera movement. It is lighting. That's what a DOP does. They light. And uh, to a certain extent they you know harsh sunlight is kind of not as interesting a light that you can sometimes get a more interesting thing happening with uh with overcast I actually like this look I think it looks really really good I think it's really well, solid
2: that's, that's cool then then maybe you like lockdown when I you know I said to Michael let's do some film noir stuff okay <laughs> like when he's on his ship we'll just do like the little slot of light over his eyes Yeah and I don't know if you know and stuff like that you know that's what I like that's what I do every day it's just play with the light trying to make come come up with creative ways or, you know, keep them really dark. And I said, we've done warm light. Let's hit him with just nothing but blue and stuff like that. And, and luckily, Michael responds very quickly to that uh, within certain hues. He, he grew to not be too fond of, of uh, turquoise on this movie. What he wanted was a cobalt blue or, a, uh, or greens mm-hmm. and, or purple. And he goes, he's just like me. He gets tired of doing things a certain way. So I want to do something different. And and so, you know, it gives you a different color palette. And believe it or not, you know, the audience doesn't realize you spend an awful lot of time. It's a very esoteric process where you're worrying about color tones and and uh, and all the, all the different strange ways of making a, a, a new character, a new shot interesting, all through the lighting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're almost scoring it in terms of a color palette, aren't you? The same way that you would score it with music. Exactly. That's true. T- tell me about the ship, because it's, uh, it's a really interesting... I mean, you've just touched on it earlier, The lighting is really interesting, but there's also a lot of um, shadows and a lot of uh, stuff that, yeah, it's not bright and perky. Um, did, was there concept art that looked like that? Was the, uh, you know, this is obviously very much an animated sequence.
2: Well, yes, there was. Um There were different views of the ship. Um, What Michael did is he had a couple of uh, fellows that actually had been in the gaming industry, and they were really great model artists and were were fast. Um, And so he had them actually in his office for a long time just creating uh, the inside of the ship, just the geometry. Now, they went and it got pretty heavy. So heavy that, in fact, we had to strip it down and make it simpler just for us to pick camera angles. Be- and then, you know, you can you can uh, you tell the software that you, okay, lay all the geometry in. But just to figure it out, there's so many. I think hundreds of thousands of pieces inside that ship to try and figure out the excuse me the corridors and the interiors.
0: So they were doing this what so in in a compatible format that then handed over the data to you at DIALM.
2: Uh, I'm not sure it was that compatible. I think we had to re-engineer it a little bit in, okay. into our system. Um, but but the point was that that way Michael was was there to uh, more or less dictate what his favorite views were and make sure that they were the geometry that was there. That Basically, the architecture was there, and, and we would worry about lighting it and all that stuff later on. And so that's how that was kind of created, and the, and he'd have them work. Okay, this will be sort of the outside. Okay, this will sort of be the inside. Then it was a little bit like Lego Land. You can we could mix and match the different views. It's just like the the set pieces that Jeffrey Beecroft created for uh, where the actors run around in all the in the weapons room and all the different corridors. The the ultimate design came from multiple pieces that could be moved around on wheels. So you could have a long run, or a T intersection, or a, a curved wall with a with a with a arch over the top of it, and, and mix and match. So, and I think that's that's kind of what I tried to do, even in the model form on the interior, where we would grab different pieces of what had been constructed, and we could still mix and match to some extent.
0: But Scott, and, it sounded like you were very influential in the lighting of these sequences, though.
2: Well, we did a lot of that. Yeah, Michael had ideas, but you know, we we usually plunge in, take a stab at things. He he'd always have a lot of ideas afterwards. But generally, that's what I do. I throw a bunch of stuff together, trying to, so I can get his reaction. And so you know, a huge big chamber. Uh, it's interesting if you do research. There's um, in man-made interiors. Uh, you know, not everything's lit. Of course, uh, you, you light certain areas. So then the question is, what areas are you going to are you going to illuminate? Well, you want to have something, of course, for your characters, but maybe maybe the characters are dark with a background that's lit, so they're more silhouette. And it depends on how you're trying to stage the thing. And so you start playing with ideas like that. Okay, what if we put a pool of light back here, and what if we have just a waterfall of sparks over here with a little bit of illumination? And what if we have, uh, we, we don't know where it comes, but there's water down below, and it's got some reflections. And, you know, you would start doing stuff like that. And uh, and then I, I always say, throw the pasta against the wall and see if it sticks. Let's, you know, try and work it out so it kind of looks interesting to us and show it to Michael. And that's what we do.
0: <laughs> After all
2: we have done, humans are hunting us. I fear we are all targets now.
0: So thanks, I guess, to start by saying thank you so much for taking time to talk to us because you've only just finished the film, so you must be exhausted.
3: Yeah, yes, absolutely. We're, uh, we're all sort of coming down a little bit, you know, coming off the, the massive high of the delivery. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're exhausted but happy.
0: I was talking to Scott about um, lockdown ship. I, I think it's a really uh, great... Uh, well, there are scenes in the films. That it's very visual, obviously, when it uh, first appears. But um, uh, it, it's great up in the ship as well. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Uh,
3: yeah, the, uh, the, the interesting thing about the ship is that it is essentially sort of, well, or it has been turned into by lockdown, a massive prison. Um, and when you walk in there, or, or the first time that you fly, you fly in and you sort of see the expanse of how large the ship is, um, you know, I haven't heard the final sound design, but my anticipation is is that it's going to sound, you know, very much like a giant haunted house, and there's all these sort of nooks and crannies around the ship where you can't quite exactly see what's back there, but, you know, it's full of sort of scary, you know, fire and um, electrical light going off and, you know, things happening that makes it seem, you know, like a very forbidding place, um, not to mention just everywhere you look are cells with various types of creatures, kind of in them, which we, you know, sort of populated with, you know, robots and um, and other kind of fleshy creatures, um, just to pique everyone's interest, you know, and sort of what was in there. And so, you know, so the development of the ship sort of centered around where these little set pieces played out, you know, the rescuing of Optimus, um, which happens sort of in the drop ship, um, is what we're calling sort of those arms that are stuck on the sides of the yeah. ship. And then the rescuing of Tessa, who's running around inside the main part of the ship itself. Um, and then we even get into things like, <clears throat> you know, they end up in this sort of like area of the ship, which sort of generates the energy, which you kind of, you know, if, if you follow the, the thread of our minds through, is sort of what generates the, the energy for pulling up all the pieces uh, as the ship moves along Hong Kong and <clears throat> pulls up cars and buses and all the different metal parts. Um, as it's trying to suck up all the the transformers into it. Yeah, So there's a. Yeah, go ahead. I was
0: going to say, it just is fascinating to me just how uh, interesting it is. What's in a jail? You know, like any scene like that, it's just uh, it's huge curiosity value to an audience. It must be kind of fun populating it
3: yeah it it is it's interesting to sort of like try to figure out the story you know behind the story and you know it's one of those things that the people who aren't working on the film don't really probably put too much thought behind but um knowing the fans of these films you know you always want to you want to always sort of want to give them some extra little story there and i think the story here is just that you know lockdown is sort of the badass uh sheriff of the transformers world and and uh you know, he goes out and he gets what he wants. He always gets his man sort of thing. And so there's there's some pretty scary-looking creatures on the ship. And it also gives you that hint of, you know, as he even says in the film, you have no idea what's out there. And that's what he's sort of trying to tell, you know, the humans and everybody else. is. Well, even, even to some extent Optimus, he's sort of saying, you know, I've seen things you have no idea what's out in the universe. And this ship is sort of a, a reflection of that.
0: Inside the ship, it's... Terrific, and then it's dark, and there's you know sinister, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. i was just wondering, in terms of actual rendering, uh, what were you sort of rendering this in? Because I presume it's a physically based uh, solution. What was the render model?
3: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was the the ship itself was being done um, through um, through uh, Max and V-Ray, right. and um, we were so we were extending. There were some fairly large set pieces that they used to to indicate sort of a a cage wall or you know a pillar or something like that. But but the majority of it was set extension and or complete you know CG fabrication. And we sort of came up with we had a Jeffrey Croft, uh and the um, the art team. They had a fairly large extensive library of images they created where we would sort of riff off of. You know, here's a sort of something that is type, a type of pillar, or here's the thing that we we called these had these things we called silos, which looked like little nuclear silos um, inside the ship, and we sort of, you know, populated into the distance with these sorts of like uh, this design language that the ship had, and you know, there was a massive amount of space to fill up, and um, so we had to sort of figure out where that render detail was going to go, but there was a, a lot of really detailed and um, really cool-looking uh, renders going on that were, you know, fairly extensive and fairly close to camera.
0: And the uh, the dogs, and um, because of their sort of part organic nature, was that uh, V-Ray or did you move to something else?
3: No, that was uh, that was done through uh, RenderMan. So we had sort of a split pipeline there, where one one half of it was our our generalist um, approach, where we had a generalist artist rendering the ship, and then those were typically done through our, our TV pipeline in RenderMan.
0: So we're sort of used to Transformers in a primary um, humanoid kind of form, but on Lockdown Ship that, that then sort of crash and escape are the Dinobots, and you're not mm-hmm. modeling stuff that's a classic uh, humanoid bipedal form. This is, uh, though I, I did joke with Scott, you, you are the perfect company to do anything related to dinosaurs from a, from a yeah. DNA point of view. <laughs> we've had but, some,
3: yes, we've had some experience
0: there. Yeah, it's a bit of experience. But, um, but tell me, what, uh, what challenges did they uh, sort of pose?
3: Well, the Dinobots were challenging in that they, you know, we knew we couldn't rely on some. A lot of times with the Transformers, you kind of pick a, you know, here's a, here's a an actor or a here, you know, not a specific actor, but here's a type of a person this is, or here's a type of actor, or here's a character that you kind of um, may be able to relate to, you know, um, as an archetype, and and that becomes a little bit of the personality that the the animators and the and the lighters and the designers and everybody can follow and get into the character. With the Dinobots, you sort of have to think a little bit more like, okay, these are, in their base nature, these are animals. So what kind of animal is this? And, you know, obviously when you're dealing with, um, the, you have the direct relation of what dinosaurs they might be, you know, Grimlock being a T-Rex. and um, But nobody knows what those are really like. You know, so we sort of put some personality. So the, you know, the Triceratops is going gonna, is gonna to probably appear to people more like, um, he kind of has some dog-like qualities, you know, he's always digging, you know, he's always, like, scratching at things, and, and he's a bit of a bull because he's ramming his head into things, you know, so you're sort of looking for animals that kind of, you know, for whatever scene that they happen to be in or whatever they're trying to do that help give them that, that extra bit of personality.
1: If we talk um, about Grimlock, think,
0: though, for a second, Grimlock, yeah. well, has the, I mean, the T-Rex is obviously a predator. You guys helped define my perception of what a T-Rex would be like, and yet, in many respects, from a uh, narrative point of view in the plot, he kind of takes the role of a horse. Um, you know, he provides that kind of, uh, uh, you know, spot for Optimus Prime to sort of ride into battle. So was there any sort of influence of a horse's kind of thing? I mean, obviously it isn't the motion of a horse, but there's a, a certain, uh, you know, Wild West riding kind of vibe to it.
3: Yeah, that's true. I mean, he he really, I mean, part of that is just being able to sort of like emphasize that Optimus's boss sort of moment, and and you know Optimus getting on top of him and sort of saying, you know, you're going to do what I want, and I'm, I'm ri-, you know, you're my weapon basically is what he's saying, and he uses him like that. He rides him through Hong Kong, kind of, you know, directing him, and then at the same time, he, you know, he is a, 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 a basically an extension of Optimus's, you know, offense in that fight where he's he's tossing guys up in the air and Grimlock is grabbing them out of the air and biting them in half and. You know, just basically tearing tearing everything up, um, along with Optimus as they ride through the streets. So I think there's more. There's definitely a little bit more to it than just a utility sort of player. There's there's sort of the you know the the big payoff which everyone wants to see, which is you know what sort of power do these Dinobots have and what can they do and you know um, and I think you see plenty of of uh, things in Hong Kong where where. You know, Grimlock is just, you know, bashing things and biting things and, and snapping at things, which is a ton of fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is a, an audience favorite, isn't it? I mean, it's just, uh, what, what isn't there to like about robotic dinosaurs? It's just uh, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, from an animation point of view, you have to have a mechanical, theoretically sort of hard surface robot riding a theoretically hard surface kind of T-Rex horse and making those look like they're doing that when, in reality, you'd have a flesh human on a flesh horse with all of the kind of compression and yeah. stuff that goes on. You can't just bend the metal to make it look completely rubbery or it wouldn't look like metal. So it's a, it's not an easy animation task, is it?
3: No, it's absolutely not. And I mean, we have you know, one thing that is a constant problem and that we have to be really aware of all the time is just, you know, interpenetrations between mm-hmm. our different um, it, because we have a lot of scenes where we have robots either, you know, grabbing each other or fighting with each other and, you know, even a the, the simple act of you know, like you said, the the complex act of having a robot sit on top of another one—that's a particular problem. But it at least you kind of know what you're looking for. Kind of the other problem is just you know when one robot's putting his hand on another's uh, shoulder, you know, puts his arm around his neck, or does something of that nature. It, it just becomes one of these things where we we throw five people, you know, down on their machines and say, okay, everybody just look at this and try to find the interpenetrations because you know that if you get pretty far down the line and you're trying to find all the shot and those things come up, that, that's just massively deflating, you know, to have to go back and and, and move pieces out of the way. Um, and as you said, it can be hard and it can force animation changes. So we try to kind of keep our eyes open for that and, and, and be prepared for that. And Optimus riding Grimlock, that was definitely one of those things that um, caused us to sort of perk up and, and try to make sure that we knocked that stuff out of the way early.
0: Because it's, it's a continuum, isn't it? I mean, you've got collision detection. I mean, someone might be think, listening to this and saying, well, why don't they just run an algorithm? But the collision detection doesn't necessarily perfectly map the shape of a, a deformed piece of geo in the first place, because if it did get to that level, the the collision detection algorithm would, like, sort of kill itself. So there's some approximation that has to happen for collision detection to actually work, and... And yet, yes. the intersection may violate that because, as I say, because of a displacement, even that could cause something to. Uh, so, it, you're saying in the end, it just comes down to grunt work of checking and, and double checking.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes through where w- you know we'll we'll have sessions which we we sort of say, okay, this animation is good to render, um, and then we definitely have a pass through where we have to go through our our creature soup who who looks at all this stuff and. Um, and, you know, tries to put things in, in place. One of the big challenges for this has always been, you know, with this many pieces, who's to say exactly what's correct? I mean, you can look <laughs> at a turntable as many times as you want, but until you see that thing move and the guy lifts his arm all the way up in the air and you see into an armpit of a robot and you're kind of going, what's, what's correct here? You know, what's the right answer? And sometimes there is no right answer and you're looking for a sort of, hey, that looks good. Subjectively, I think that is right you know and then you sort of check that off and move on and start rendering you know but there's there's definitely a lot of you know is this is this the right am i looking at the right thing and with robots and assets that are this complex it's a massive job to sort of you know manage that and keep things you know not looking broken basically when uh, when you have this much action
0: so it's John Goodman i think who does the voicing of Hound but Hound's character just That's right. the just the beard alone seemed to be a collision detection nightmare. Is that kind of dealing with, uh, you have done tentacles in pirates before, but I mean, that's, it's non-trivial. And of course we're looking there, right? That's where the audience, we're looking at their face when that happens.
3: Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, a a crazy um, time. Luckily, um, he was designed in such a way that he sort of has a pocket around his, his neck. He has a rather large and wide neck. So, um, there was a, definitely a lot of work to put into making the beard not collide with itself. And um, there were some fun fun moments that we had where during the fight, he's actually being shot quite a bit. He just takes a ton of punishment. And, um, you know, bullets are actually hitting his beard. And, and being able to actually flick those those parts of his beard and see stuff happen was actually a benefit because I, I think um, – it added a bit of complexity to the whole, just visual complexity to the whole thing. And then, you know, when he's falling down on the ground and you see his beard sort of flip up, you know, we're always looking for ways that we can make these guys look dynamic. You know, in fact, we're, we're constantly spinning parts of them or moving their eyes or taking something on their ear and twisting it around. And Hound having that beard moving around plus his dog tags and everything sort of made a, you know, just a, a nice image to look at most of the time, which takes a little bit of the pressure off.
0: So, Pat, just for those that are listening at home and keeping track, we've obviously got the Autobots, and they've all been upgraded. We've got uh, Lockdown. He's got Henchmen. He's got uh, his pack of uh, dogs or wolves, as I call them. Um, you've got all these new Dinobots, and if that wasn't enough, you now introduce the uh, KSI, uh, Galvatron, megatron dish based kind of stuff, uh, Stinger, a whole new way of doing a uh, transformation. I mean, you guys are mm-hmm. not making life easy on yourselves, are you?
3: No, there, there's definitely the sense that, you know, every time Michael comes here, he's ready for an upgrade. You know, he, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to do what's been done before. I actually had him say those exact words to me, you know, that, that um, you know, it's not about just, you know, checking boxes and saying we did a Transformers movie. It's like, what are you going to do that's new? Um, one of the new things is that, that what we call the hypno-transformation, which is the, the new way that the KSI bots transform and the introduction of the Transformium sort of into the into the universe or into the the lore of of saying okay this is what these guys are made out of and they've found a way to actually you know on demand have things transform from one thing to another which it kind of makes it a little more dangerous because as you see in the movie you can you can blow these guys apart and they're just going to reform it's sort of like that got that terminator 2 vibe mm. where you know it's sort of unstoppable because it's it's um it's not dependent. You can't just shoot the head off and, and think that it's going to stop it, kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of what this does. You know, you break these things apart, and they form these strands, and they fly from sort of point A to point B, and then they reform either into the vehicle or into the robot. And, I, and you know, that was a really fun thing to sort of come up with this sort of particle simulation way of, of figuring out how we wanted to move these strands through the air. How many should there be? How do they? You know, how do the colors of the vehicle come into play? Um, that was sort of a, a whole new challenge for us on this phone.
0: and and just the animation of that i mean uh, particle stuff just makes me want to run to a sim but you know you've got to have these things <clears> also forming into performances and stuff it's uh quite a difficult sort of pipeline problem
3: yeah it was a- it absolutely was and we had and and luckily we had some really guy, good guys on this from the very start and um john hansen was our effects lead and and his team work to make it so that we did have options, which meant that we, you know when you pulled these vehicles apart, you sort of were starting, we were able to have our animators basically rough in sort of, okay, here's, here's where the car starts to do its transformation, and they would do sort of a rough traditional transformation on that, so you would have, you know, for instance, a car turns a corner, it starts to form into a robot, and then they would just sort of fly the robot from point A to point B, and... And then the performance would actually end with the robot doing something cool so that you wouldn't end up with, you know, a, uh, a sort of staged-looking thing where he had to sort of sit down and then, you know, be morphed into something. You would actually get a performance where he rolls into the scene or something. So um, it was sort of a mixture of that traditional transformation animation along with, you know, at some point it was transitioning out of uh, the cubes and these, these sort of shapes, uh, strands that we were making into the – you know, into the real anim, which I think made it look um, super cool.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the opening of the film um, and the fact that uh, that ILM has real dinosaurs uh, roaming the Earth again. I'm, I'm wondering, is the best reference for ILM doing real dinosaurs, Jurassic Park? I mean, what is it? Because is that what the audience I expect?
3: Yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt. And And, you know, one of the fun things about doing real dinosaurs is we have such a fan base of of dinosaur, well, and just an act, you know, uh, a whole room full of dinosaur experts that, you know, there was a lot of excitement around being able to do some real dinosaurs. So, you know, we sort of, um, you know, I think we took some liberties with, with what the real dinosaurs are necessarily, but we, um, you know, we modeled them after or real dinos and they're sort of that herd scene where they're all running from the, the, the terraforming or the, the transforming coming down. And, uh, and just the opportunity to get in there and do those flesh and muscle shapes again, which you know the island um, animation and, and modeling team are just so good at, kind of getting that extra bit of reality into these guys because they study how these animals move or moved, and um, and so there was a, you know, there was a palpable excitement over over doing the real deal as well as the dinobots themselves.
0: It's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, obviously set in in terms of the narrative. It's a separate from sort of everything else because it's a. It's not, you know, it was in the same time period. But was it uh, just handled by the same pipeline? Was it like a special unit that just did that opening section? Or was it, how did it fit inside LM? What did you
3: render it in? It, it, was sort of, it was sort of a little bit of everything. I mean, we had sort of, um, we actually rendered um, the ships, the alien ships through our generalist pipeline and, and um, through MAX and V-Ray. And we, you know, they have the opening title sequence where they approach the Earth and then what they're, where they're coming down the canyons and uh and mostly it was an effects task really because there's that very cool sort of the the bomb exploding or the bombs uh, of transforming exploding and you get that that rush of the metal moving across the surface so it was really sort of centered on how do we get that that was a sort of a huge effects trick to sort of do and it you know it sort of had that similar feeling to you know kind of uh back another film I worked on the um Star Trek where the lava was freezing it was kind of mm-hmm. a similar thing where where we're, we've got you know this rush of molten metal moving across the surface and then hardening very fast and as the dinosaurs get in the path you know it hardens almost instantly and there's sort of you know um, there's a lot that goes along with that because there's additional passes of you know just kind of debris coming off of them and then there's the molten pass itself and the lighting that goes along with all that interactive stuff so there was a lot of time spent in just effects development and crawling over the landscape and all of that stuff was a was certainly a mind bender, but it was it was sort of handled as a kind of you know small team sort of thing where um, uh, we had uh, you know some people working on it from the very beginning, and then it sort of all came together right at the very end. Of course.
0: So was that a fully CG sequence? Was there any like natural photography of uh, kind of valleys or anything, or was it just all everything CG?
3: Yeah, no. All the all the photography that you see was part of the Iceland shoot that they did, and um, there are some really beautiful landscapes and we actually, you know, you wouldn't even believe it because you look at some of those plates and you think that this must be, you know, map painting magic that's this, making this happen. But um, we really didn't even have to extend these plates um, digitally. Uh, I can't, I'm actually thinking in my mind here, and I don't think there was a single case where the plates were not holding up because wow. it just looked so amazing that we just basically dropped our effects in on top of that. And it was Obviously, from from a layout match move perspective, it was a a challenge beyond a challenge because, you know, there was a lot of data that needed to be sort of sifted through and trying to actually, you know, figure out how to create the, you know, the rocky terrain and the surfaces and everything that we needed, you know, because we needed some amount of accuracy in order for that particle effect to look good. Um, But the plates themselves were magnificent and really looked nice.
0: I remember seeing a making of kind of thing. It was a, actually it wasn't even that it was a entertainment tonight kind of things. And I think it was on the previous right. film and they were like, we're on the set of transformers. And, you know, of course they cut to the reporter standing there and nothing happens. A couple of, you know, things blow up and there's some smoke that goes through. And of course it occurred to me at the time that if you're standing on a set, that's meant to have a huge robot on robot fight, you know, you're basically shooting mm-hmm. an empty plate. And I thought it was funny cause yeah. they were like, you know, so exciting to be on the set. And there was of course literally hardly anything for them to film, but, um, the plate photography is really critical, but what I'm getting at is the framing on set. So, if you're like doing, I don't know, something in um, Hong Kong or whatever, what are the tools to allow you to get that framing right? Because if you're just trying to create empty space for stuff to happen in, you don't want to have to do, and do set extension because you just didn't tilt up enough or it wasn't enough yeah. to the left or whatever.
3: Well, it, it is really critical that we're on set because that's basically what Michael relies on us for, which is. Um, you know, I, I I wish it was more uh, exciting to say, but basically we have poles that represent the height of the various robots, or we know how to create, you know, to these large extender poles. Um, sometimes we have actual robot heads on the on the end of them. If we have multiple robots in the scene, that helps everybody kind of understand what's going on. But you know, he, he you just have to be at the ready so that when he's saying, you know, I want to over here and I want to be looking at Optimus or I want to be looking at Lockdown over here, you got to be ready to know. Okay, I got to go run out there and stand with a pole and hoist it up there so that he knows where to frame. Um, and of course, having a lot of experience with this, he is remarkably good at sort of judging, you know, uh, how big Optimus should, you know, it, where where Optimus is in frame and how tall he is, and and sort of, you know, he gets really good at sort of framing four robots. It's an amazing skill that that whole crew has, but. Um, you really want to, like you said, you want to be there so that you can kind of help provide that accurate information because at the end of the day, if they frame that shot incorrectly, there's going to be a lot of extra work on us to, to extend a plate or do something uh, that was never intended to do because we didn't get that right on the day.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, people so it's, a,
3: it's a major part of the job.
0: People are kind of used to tennis balls for the actor's eye lines, but, but yeah. it's, it's one thing for the actor looking the right place. Another thing just to allow enough empty air upon which the action to uh, take place well for that matter how quickly to pan from empty air to you know start of shot to end of shot so that uh, because yeah. again it can dictate the speed at which the action's happening you assume the cameraman's going to like go with it but it isn't there to go with
3: yeah i think that's that that relationship of you know the the way that michael likes to shoot his his films and and scott Benz, our animation suits um uh, ability to sort of look at some of these plates and help him craft shots that go along with that because there's a lot of thought put into, okay, I need, you know, on the set, they're thinking, okay, I need to create a moment here where two robot, robots are fighting each other. But th- that's extremely hard to sort of plan out. I mean, we previs, and we have an idea of how that's going to play, but when you get out there, ev- everything changes, obviously, and you want to get the best-looking shot you can. So there's a, there's a lot of a natural and innate ability to sort of say here's a plate that has the, the right amount of time, and here's how it goes. And then when it comes back here, it's, you know, Scott are looking at that and going, okay, here's how to make this a really a cool and dynamic shot and sort of putting those things together. So that's where I think you get the benefit of having a creative team that's worked together before and really kind of understands the nature of what we're trying to do. Um, and uh, it pays off. You know, at the end of the day, we actually have, you know, you look at some of these plates and you end up with a, a really exciting and dynamic movie, and it, it does seem like magic.
0: So if I could push you on this uh, sort of leaving aside maybe the principal top two or three uh, bots, just from a technical point of view, from an effects point of view, uh, mm-hmm. could you give me your one or two favorite uh, bots in the film? And again, I'm not talking about the plot. I'm just talking about it in terms of uh, interest from a visual effects point of view or from a technical point of view in producing them.
3: Um, I think Hound is definitely uh, a you know a crew favorite and one of my personal favorites and I think will be a fan favorite because Hound has um, a vast array of weapons, which are always fun to see him and he actually he, he gets his moment in the sun of uh, kicking butt in the movie and just his uh, his beard and the you know the interesting way that he looks and he's just a um, he is a massive undertaking in that he is a uh, giant bundle of sim is as we like to say as he moves through the scene. Everything on him jangles. His belly, you know, he's got a rather large, rotund belly, and it just kind of bobs up and down all the time. And his his beard is moving around everywhere. Um, and he's got this cigar that he's chomping on. So he's just a lot of fun both to to do from a visual effects perspective and just to watch. You know, he's just a really, really cool character. Um, and I'd say, you know, uh, is is uh, I, I know that everybody's favorite is probably going to be Grimlock because he's sort of the... The premier Dinobot, as far as his, the way he's featured in the film, but the Triceratops um, uh, Dinobot as well. I'm sorry, his name is even escaping me right now. Slug, uh,
0: isn't
3: it? Uh, slug. That's right. That's right. But um, he is a ton of fun because just his personality and his attitude, and just his—he's his, sort of a, you know, bash into everything, claw at everything, sort of creature. He was just fun to have in the shots, and and we really enjoyed kind of. Um, you know, the process of, of watching him evolve through the movie because you don't know how these guys are going to be when you, that because we're, we're creating it, you know, so it's sort of fun when you sort of see the original concept art and then you sort of get through all the animation and you start looking at how they become a real character and, uh, you know, just like a family, uh, a friendly family dog, he sort of became sort of our, our little bit of our mascot for the Dinobots.
1: This is not war; it's human extinction. Oh my God!
0: So, can I swing you now to Hong Kong um, and the uh, the incredible um, operatic battle that takes place? Um, I was wondering if you could sort of compare and contrast somewhat. The, uh, the differences between what happened in Hong Kong and what happened, uh, say, in earlier films like Chicago. I mean, how was it approached from the same point of view, from ILM's point of view?
2: Well, of course, uh, the different styles of uh, destruction are many. Um, I think we spent more time doing dinosaurs hitting dirt and plowing up the dirt than we've done in other shows. We had more uh, more asphalt being torn up in more explicit manners that you could... You could see see more clearly. I I do know that we had uh, each each construction of each uh, destroyed building requires a look at the architecture and whether it was in China in in Hong Kong specifically uh, or Chicago, but most specifically, most of the destruction we did was on buildings in uh, Hong Kong. That you know, you go in and you've got to we're there and we take pictures and we study what's it made of so that we know well is that is that really just a facade of uh like a like a steel or aluminum panel over um cement or is it in front of girders or you know, so you analyze all that stuff so you know what you're gonna break apart later. So that's really really what the architecture itself is what dictates what our plan will be, I've gotta say.
0: I mean, uh, because you're on location and because, uh, obviously, supervising, but um, I just so trust your opinion. I was just wondering if I could get your read on these IMAX uh, stereo cameras because they are quite different. They've enabled the first unit to do some really interesting uh, photography. Um, I mean, they look like a couple of phantoms strapped together, but the point is they don't have a mirror rig, do they?
2: That's correct. You're exactly right. It's a side-by-side unit. So you are limited by uh, proximity of subject to to camera you know you can't get within a certain range um so it's i think they're ideal for big vistas like in monument valley um great big landscapes where where you've got uh a little distance between you and the between the camera and the subject um but they're uh they're they're sort of prototypes they've they've been in the field for a while but they, they have a different chip and they've got different color variations than the other cameras we use. So, in fact, you know, I've been forgetting to tell people this, but I think we shot with about seven or eight different camera formats. Well wow. Just to add to the complexity. Just it's mind-boggling. That really is so
0: actually our, a big deal because you're going to have to intercut these different sensors, different color spaces, and everything obviously needs to look look uh, consistent. But not only that, you need to be able to, to solve everything to be consistent in terms of... Uh Everything from tracking to uh, camera distortion to lensing, right?
2: That's exactly. Right. You know, it would be interesting visually to show you or anybody um, the all the different formats and trying to what we had to do initially is arrive at okay, what's the commonality? You know, what you know whether whether you favor bottom bottom or top crop or if, if it's a center pull, if you're extracting just from the center of the image, you've got to figure that all out before uh before you even start shooting once you know kind of what the camera bodies are gonna be, so I mean every step of the way it's been complicated, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I mean it's uh the the actual format that you were targeting at is it for a imax uh aspect ratio or is it for a cinematic aspect ratio?
2: I would say more cinematic right um <clears throat> because we shot you know like the Iceland shoot I used <laughs> It was cumbersome, but I used IMAX film cameras, uh, not 3D. So those are, you know, the, to get that lustrous film grain quality for those right. uh, exteriors and so forth. Um, but I have to say, in all all accounts, you, you basically, I think we always compose for whatever format we're kind of using, and we know that we're going to have to uh, tilt, tilt the image, you know, slide it top to bottom. Uh, in some manner or form depending on on what the extraction is if if it's not you know a lot of the IMAX stuff doesn't go to an IMAX th- theater so you've got to crop out somewhere so in many cases there again we do two different versions
0: so I mean I know you've got things like the Red Epic Dragon and the Phantom Gold in addition to uh, the new um IMAX camera uh, and apart from the color space differences and uh, the sensor differences the lensing is quite a different deal because as I understand it on the uh, digital IMAX camera the lens unit is a sort of a double lens fixed uh, interchange so you're not like putting a Panavision lens on there or a couple of different uh, Cook lenses you're actually putting these special custom lenses on
2: yeah that's right and there are limitations um, on some of the new cameras as to, well, if you know, you—it's kind of up to the filmmaker. Michael, Michael usually is uh, pretty specific about what kind of a millimeter he wants to use on the on most of the cameras. And uh, you know, it depends. If you're low and wide, that's one thing. If you—we've if you, got certainly a lot of car stuff in this picture, where typical race course type photography you're doing in long lenses. And uh, so, so some of the cameras didn't have the, the vast array of lenses that maybe a RED would have or what have you. It's, everybody's trying to get in line and in, in, in step with having more production-oriented hardware, I guess you'd say. And, and it's happening.
0: Because, of course, from your point of view, and the reason I bring this up is that when we're doing a 2D picture, you can do a lot of fakes, you can do a lot of things, but you need an accurate sort of three-dimensional depth mapping of everything because you can't just place somewhere where it looks good, you have to place something correct in its Z-depth. So having all those camera solutions being exact is, is, you know, it's not like a, it's not a given, like just the starting place, you have to get everything right.
2: No, but of course, if you're shooting with a single body camera with a single lens, you can cheat in the conversion
0: phase yep, but true.
2: you know in simple terms we have shots in this movie where it got really complicated where he, it's it's a real head scratcher we, we're in a barn we've got optimus in the barn and he doesn't fit so because you've got posts over here and you've got pipes over here and you've got a ladder over here and where do you fit his elbow is it in front of or behind this pipe and if he leans forward what's he going to do especially and you're trying to In certain cases, we'd reanimate so all those big body parts would fit between these places. In some cases, we had to paint out uh, pre-existing physical things in the space because when you see it in 3D, maybe a lot of folks don't realize it, but you can really tell if the space is appropriate for the fit or not. And you said, well, wait a minute, look, his elbow went right through that thing, right? So there's a lot of monkeying around with this stuff.
0: Well, look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it, Scott. Congratulations on the film.
2: I'm glad to talk to you. Thanks thank so much. Thank you very much. We need a new army.
1: Well, that was great. I really like hearing about how new, new challenges keep coming up in movies that we consider to be sequels that just, you'd think, Oh, we can just do another one of those. Well, they all go up exponentially in difficulty, obviously. Um, I wanted to speak for a moment about FX PhD. It's our online training site with industry leading professors, bringing you ways to improve or learn new skills. Check it out at fxphd.com. Also over the years, people have asked us of ways to support FX guide and all the stuff that we bring you. So we created the FX insider program that offers members, exclusive content and expanded articles for only $49 a year. It's a way for people who care about what we do and visual effects to help us continue and grow. Details at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. We also do a whole bunch of podcasts, audio and video. This is the FX podcast. We also do the VFX show, which reviews visual effects and current releases and classic films. The RC podcast covers the digital cinematography landscape, which is always in flux and changing. And uh, Jason Wingrove and Mike Seymour try to keep you up to date with that. We also produce a high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these, along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast.
0: Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is Copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.